I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 12, 2018. Coming up, an interview with Dr. Stephen Masley, author of The Better Brain Solution, a comprehensive guide to the ways blood sugar and insulin interact to create a risk for dementia. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. I know that if I don't get a good night's sleep for a couple nights, I feel really bad. And so do rats. When they're deprived of REM sleep, that's rapid eye movement sleep, which is the brain's most active sleep stage, the rats get sick and eventually they'll die. When we, other mammals and birds, are sleep deprived for long periods, we have a catch-up period during which we make up for some of the lost REM sleep. The northern fur seal is unique in its sleep habits. When they doze on the beach, they sleep like we do. Both sides of their brains cycle through periods of REM sleep. But when they're in the water, they can do like dolphins and whales and shut down one half of the brain at a time for their REM sleep. Even weirder, the fur seal, which spends most of its life in the water, can go without REM sleep for days or even weeks with no ill effects and no catch-up. So what's going on with these animals? It's like maybe they don't need REM sleep? A group at UCL decided to investigate. The researchers put electrodes on seals' brains, eyes, muscles, and hearts. They controlled the amount of REM sleep the seals got by raising or lowering the water level in their pool. This exposed or submerged the platform they used for sleeping. The researchers think that when the seals are on land, They, like other mammals, use REM sleep to keep their brains warm. But if they're in the water and active, they don't need REM sleep because they're moving around and that keeps their brains warm. Of course, there are some other explanations, like maybe the researchers didn't look closely enough to see adverse effects. After all, it's not easy to ask a seal how it's feeling. This study was published last week in the journal Current Biology. Do you have a preschooler who would like some science? check out Monday morning at the museum, Henderson Museum on the CU Boulder campus, that is. Bring your favorite preschooler for a free hands-on introduction to the wonderful world of science and nature. Together, you can examine museum specimens, make crafts, and hear stories. Monday, June 18th, from 9.30 till 10.30 in the morning, the topic is moving water. Water moves by gravity, sunlight, and even people. Pour water down a mountain waterfall, make a terrarium for a sunny spot, and create a pot to catch and hold some water with your preschooler. Visit the museum website at www.colorado.edu museum for details. So, we humans can understand and use the idea of zero in math and science. Are we unique? For years, science Scientists have known that parrots and monkeys get this concept of zero as well. And now, bees have joined this elite group. Honeybees are known to have some arithmetic skills, such as the ability to count to four. This is clearly a useful skill if you have to keep track of landmarks in your environment, like foraging bees do. Researchers wanted to see if bees could do better. 
An international team of scientists from universities in Australia and France devised some experiments to answer this question. In a series of trials, the researchers showed the insects two different pictures displaying a few black shapes on a white background. If the bees flew to the picture with the smaller number of shapes, they were given delicious sugar water. But if they flew toward the larger number, they were punished with bitter-tasting quinine. These results showed that bees can identify the smaller of the two numbers. Once the bees had learned to consistently make the correct choice on that test, then the researchers gave them a new option, a white background containing no shapes at all. Even though the bees had never seen an empty picture before, 64% of the time they chose this option. And they weren't just going for the empty picture because it was new and interesting. Another group of bees were trained to always choose the larger number, and they picked the non-zero image in this test. In additional experiments, the bees' understanding of zero was shown to be even more sophisticated. For example, they were able to distinguish between one and zero, a challenge even for some other members of the zero club. Advanced numerical abilities like this can give animals an evolutionary advantage, helping them to keep track of predators and food sources. And if an insect can grasp the concept of zero, then this ability may be more common in the animal kingdom than we think. This study was reported last week in the journal Science. Epidemics sweeping the developed world are type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. These conditions are connected by diet and other environmental factors, which Dr. Stephen Masley explores in his book, The Better Brain Solution. Based on the results of numerous clinical trials he's conducted in his medical practice, Masley presents a program to prevent and possibly reverse this metabolic syndrome. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stephen Masley. You've written a fascinating new book on the better brain solution in which you discuss the relationship between blood sugar, that's our diet really, and degenerative brain diseases, especially Alzheimer's. So can you start out by explaining the relationship between blood sugar and insulin, especially insulin resistance? Well, here's what's fascinating. So insulin's the hormone that tells us to store energy. So whether we have a healthy meal, you know, with carbs like kale and blueberries, or we overload ourselves with like cereal or bread or potatoes, sugar comes in, glucose comes in, and insulin says stored in the cells. And that's what we've been doing for 100,000 years really naturally. But for the first time ever, now we get surges of more and more and more glucose from our food. So like if you had cereal for breakfast, bread for lunch, crackers for a snack, and potatoes for dinner, well, your cells would become full. When they become full of energy, let's like a muscle cell. Muscles store glycogen to build up for your next workout. But eventually they, they exceed their um, storage capacity. You can't make any more glycogen from glucose. And they become insulin resistant. They stop listening to that message. But here's the irony. For, as I said, for 100,000 years, this has worked beautifully, but that's because we've never had excessive carb intake until now. Now, when you're, when, strangely, when you fill up your brain with sugar, it shuts down. 
Let me give you an example. If we did a PET scan and looked at glucose metabolism in brain cells, someone who's healthy, eats well, works out, their brain would light up like a Christmas tree. When we do a PET scan on someone with insulin resistance, it's quiet. You don't see much activity. The brain is dysfunctional. And if that continues over time, the brain cells start to die, and then your brain starts to shrink. So... Yeah, insulin resistance um, shuts down our brain and kills off our brain cells. And it's um, a huge percent, millions of people today. Oh, yeah. The statistics on Alzheimer's are quite alarming. And I think a lot of people are really interested in this link between diet and Alzheimer's. And so that's the, the you know huge group of people that will learn a lot potentially from your book. So what I'm hearing you say is that in your brain and probably in all the cells of your body, the insulin resistance is kind of like a log jam in a river that blocks the water that should be getting through. And even though the cells need it, they can't get it. That's a, that's a really good analogy. That's a great analogy. So then by cutting back on carbs, talk a little bit on what, you rec- what your dietary recommendations are for cutting back on carbs, because I know a lot of people think carbs are really healthy. Well, I'm not suggesting a low-carb diet because we want green. The pigments from plant pigments, those are all carbs, but they're really good and they protect us from oxidative stress. They block rusting in our brain. They decrease inflammation. So we want green leafies and berries and dark chocolate and green tea. We want these pigments, but we don't want sudden sugar load. Really, it's about glycemic load. How much sugar do you get from a serving of food? So low glycemic load would be like berries and all the vegetables except for a potato and beans and nuts. I mean, those have all like low glycemic load and they have lots of nutrients and that's what we want. We don't want the sugar and flour and potatoes and rice that have a very high glycemic load. And I was happy to see that you do have a table in your book of glycemic load so that it's really easy to scan and look for foods. And one thing I've noticed, I like experimenting on myself, and I've noticed that by doing my own blood sugar, I can kind of calculate my own glycemic load. So if you're a little OCD like me, you can do that for yourself. But otherwise, you can just look in sources like your book and see that kind of formulation. Because really, um, things like the fiber in Um, whole grains and vegetables and fruits will slow down that rise of blood sugar. Is that correct? It does. You know, so like people, you know, they look at orange juice for breakfast. But when you, that means an orange with no fiber, which means you might as well just be drinking a soda. You get a huge glycemic load from that. Whereas you don't from eating an orange. An orange has a low glycemic load. But here it's it's a little more complicated than you're saying because when you look at a bowl of sugar or a bowl of white flour or a bowl of whole wheat flour obviously the whole wheat flour has more fiber and nutrients but from a glycemic response they all behave the same so once you grind a grain into flour it acts just like table sugar and that's a huge problem okay and so then once you have that insulin resistance because of a long period of time of high blood sugar levels once you have that insulin resistance in your brain what is the link between that state then and developing alzheimer's well the first stage is just brain fog you know if you if you're just if you push yourself into insulin resistance initially you know, you just, you might be more forgetful, you forget people's names, you don't know why you walked into a room. You know, that forgetfulness, the things they call a senile moment that have nothing to do with age, that's a myth. 
But what it does have to do with is you, if you're eating the sad standard American diet and you have insulin resistance, just you said with that log jam, you're blocking your cell's ability in the brain to use energy. But what if that's not just a, a week, a weekend where you overdid it? What if it's an ongoing lifestyle? Your brain cells start to die. You start, you're killing off brain cells, and you're literally, your brain is shrinking over time. So by the time someone has insulin resistance, by the time they get to pre-diabetes, that's you, by the time your blood sugar is elevated, you've had insulin resistance for about five years. You've killed millions of brain cells. Your brain cell is shrinking, and you're, you're on your route to getting Alzheimer's disease. You could stop it. You can stop the decline. You can even, we've shown from our data that you can even actually improve, regain brain processing speed. But, you know, you're losing brain reserve. And as we age, we count on that reserve. So if you've killed off all the brain reserve you were hoping to have later, and it's not there, then you, your memory really deteriorates. So one of the characteristics of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, of course, is the presence of this um, protein plaque called beta amyloid. And what, how does that form? Is that because nerve cells are getting sick and in the process of dying they produce the beta amyloid? Okay, so that's the second part. I'm really glad you brought that up. So it's, I would not say beta amyloid's the cause of it's a sign. So when your brain cells they become infected with the virus, they can make beta amyloid to protect themselves. When but here's the other thing about insulin, um, and this is really startling. So not only does when your insulin's high, your brain cells shut down, they're more likely to die, but the same enzyme that removes insulin is also responsible for removing beta amyloid, that sticky inflammatory protein that's associated with Alzheimer's disease. If you're eating more refined carbs and your sugar levels go up, you're making more insulin, but you've got to break down the insulin. And so all the enzyme that would normally be removing beta amyloid is now removing insulin and you grow more beta amyloid because of it. Right. That was a fascinating point to me. I'd never heard of this enzyme, so I had to look it up and read about it. And it seems like it's really a protective enzyme because not only does it remove insulin and beta amyloid, but all kinds of other incorrectly folded proteins that could also contribute to brain fog and neurodegenerative diseases. So I was really excited to read that. Well, it's fast. I won't. It's fascinating. I completely agree with you. It's fascinating, but it's terrifying to realize most Americans are eating in a way that overproduces insulin and removes their ability to re, to take out these um, brain degenerating. You know, the, harm, the these. You know, their hormone dysfunction that leads to excess production of these proteins that can damage and inflame our brains. Exactly. And, and the- then once we reach that point, you asked before, I didn't, I, I think I should follow up. When you, when you do reach the point that your brain cell's not functioning, it's kind of like a sinking ship that, you know, in the old steamships, you know, there was that guy who were, would be shoveling coal into the, into the furnace to run that engine. But, and the fan is what took the smoke out of the air. But when the ship starts to break down, you, the, the fan fills up with smoke and the guy dies and the ship goes down. Well, it's kind of the same in our brain. Once we start building up more beta amyloid, we become more inflamed, we get oxidative stress, and then it's like a um, catch-22. It's this accelerated fire, you know, 
as you add more inflammation, you become more sugar resistant. As you become insulin resistant, you get more inflammation, you get more oxidative stress, and the brain cells just die off. So it's it reaches a point of dwindling possibility of stopping this. It's a chain reaction that takes over in the end. Right. And to continue the ship analogy, it's almost as if the um, the lighthouse or the um, the radio dispatcher on shore isn't working either because our food pyramid and our national guidelines about diet aren't really reflecting all this new information. Well, remember, our national food guidelines don't have to do with health. They have to do with marketing food production in the U.S. We are supporting the agricultural production. So there's a misconnect. We think, okay, our, the recommendations should be for our health. The primary directive is actually to help sell American-produced um, food. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And an, another component of that um, food production pathway is saturated fat. So can you talk a little bit about the role that saturated fats, I mean, because there's definitely, and you talk a lot in the book about how there's good saturated fats and bad saturated fats. So maybe you could talk about that. Well, and saturated fat is, you know, for years we've condemned it and said it was negative, right? And we had people eat all these processed foods with more sugar, and that turned out to be a terrible experiment that increased diabetes rates, you know, not just in the U.S., but internationally as well. And I think more and more the data on saturated fat is it's neutral to mildly harmful. So, you know, if you're really, if, here's the worst part. If you eat a lot of saturated fat and a lot of refined sugar, that combination together is very inflammatory. So, and, but think about when do we eat saturated fat, like a fr- French fries, you know, when they, well, it's more trans fat. Then, but when you think about a hamburger, it comes with a bun. Or cheese, which comes with crackers. Right. You know, we tend to put sugar, which is inflammatory, with saturated fat, and that's the worst combo. That combination is far more inflammatory than either food by themselves. So there's actually quite a bit of controversy in the, in the medical community right now. Is saturated fat really bad for you if it's clean? Or is it just bad if you add it with sugar? And that makes, clearly that makes it worse. I think everyone agrees. If you combine saturated fat with sugar, it's a lot worse than if you had it by itself. Whether it's actually benign, um, increased saturated fat might increase beta amyloid production. So, I mean, there's definitely some concerns about eating in excess, but I'm vastly more concerned about getting rid of sugar and refined carbs than I am telling people to get rid of their saturated fat, especially if it's clean, you know, pesticide-free, organically raised, um, grass-fed, wild sources. I think that's far less of a concern. Right, right. And an interesting point along those lines is that uh, one thing I've one piece of research I've been reading lately is the role of mitochondria in protecting against neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. And it shows that um, interventions like exercise as well as some drugs that are protective to mitochondria will be protective against Alzheimer's. And that would seem to work along the same path that you're describing, insulin resistance and oxidation damage. Well, yeah, anything that increases inflammation and oxidative stress in the cell is going to be really hard on the mitochondria. 
So if we were to eat clean food, get rid of our sugar, get rid of those inflammatory components, we'd protect, and there's nutrients that, you know, really help improve mitochondrial function. Mitochondria is what makes energy for the cell, and the cell needs energy to survive. So, I mean, one of the theories behind all aspects of cell death is mitochondrial dysfunction, which leads to it, especially for brain cells. So, but I think um, this whole blood sugar connection is probably the most powerful influence on mitochondrial function in the brain. Right. So I think that listeners might be curious now to know what would you have to eat on a typical day that would be protective of your brain health? Well, we've, I mean, so from our clinic, we've been doing cognitive testing on people for almost 15 years. And we've looked at what foods, what nutrients, what activities predict better performance or worse. And we've published that in multiple clinical trials. And we've actually done randomized clinical trials on the, what we've identified for five steps. So for food, step one is food. We looked at like green leafy vegetables and beets, um, berries, colorful plant pigments, really seem to decrease oxidative stress, inflammation, and protect the brain. So it's not surprising that we should be eating more broccoli and berries and dark chocolate and drinking green tea. Even red wine and coffee in moderation, not more than one or two servings a day have benefit. So plant pigments would be one category. Another is smart fats. We need those fats that are anti-inflammatory, like from wild fish or fish oil or from seaweed. And we also want... Um, like extra virgin olive oil and nuts, because those are fats that nourish our brain. So eating more of those is really a good thing. It's not about a low-fat diet anymore. And then we want spices and herbs. Like the most powerful ones are Italian herbs, especially rosemary, and curry spices, in particular turmeric. And all of those are block oxidative stress, decrease inflammation, and they make our food taste good at the same time. Fortunately, we've evolved to like the taste of these spices and herbs. You know, so that's how we make food taste good, and we protect our brain and lower inflammation at the same time. So those are the key food groups that I'm looking at that really help our brain. And you provide a lot of additional detail in your book that we don't have time to go into in this brief interview, but I will provide a link to the book uh, and your website on our website. But what, just to close, what are some other suggestions that you have? I know you have these five um, avenues. Besides diet, what are those? So, you know, in addition to food, there's nutrients. There's key nutrients you need for your brain, like vitamin D and mixed folates, B12, magnesium, just things we're commonly deficient in that really are essential to our brain. The activity, both aerobic activity and strength training, independently are good for the brain. That stress management, like meditation and adequate sleep, lower cortisol and protect our brain. And lastly, there's some toxins, really common toxins out there that are easy to avoid if you know what to do. So the right food, right nutrients, add activity, manage your stress, avoid toxins, and wow, you, you can dramatically improve your brain function and help prevent memory loss. Doesn't sound too hard to me. It sounds really enjoyable, actually. And, well, that's the key. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to come up. How do you make it easy 
for people to take steps that would be make them mentally sharper, quicker, less forgetful, and more productive. And I mean, after all, who wouldn't want a better brain? Of course. So yeah, yeah that's really what the Better Brain Solutions about. And I've just been really excited to see the results that we've been able to oh, achieve. That's fantastic. And I just want to emphasize one other point for the listening audience that I think is really key is that you've done some randomized trials. And this is the gold standard for uh, getting scientific evidence. I mean, many dietary studies are based on epidemiological evidence, which is pretty weak. And getting experimental data like you have done, whether, you know, it might be on a small population, but it's, it's real data. And so it's sound data. Well, yeah, and, and it makes me feeling like I'm providing something meaningful. I mean, way too often people have a well-intentioned idea, but they don't know if it really works. Exactly. I can feel with confidence that it works, that people within 30 days are going to feel dramatically different and make a difference in their lives. Yeah, it's, it's I'm fantastic. I'm just looking for help and getting the message out there. And I'm, yep, I'm trying to give you that. So we'll link to your book. And um, thank you so much for talking. We are out of time, and um, I wish you good luck with the book. Thank you so much. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker, and this week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and our additional music was from the New Beats. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and even follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. You can hear How on Earth every Tuesday mornings at 8.32 right here at KGNU. And there will be information about Dr. Stephen Masley talking about the program that he's developed to protect against the diabetes and Alzheimer's disease pair that will be online at howonearthradio.org.